Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week we studied the story of Hagar in the Midbar, yes? So if we study Hagar, we noticed there was a wordplay right on her name. So Hagar is the story we're looking at last week and this week, uh, the second part of her story, um, and we can't miss the wordplay Hagar, stranger. So Hagar, again, this we always hear the resonance of Hagar, the stranger. Um, why is stranger, why is that word important for us as Israelites? Because we were strangers. Where were we strangers? Egypt. Yes, in the land of Egypt. Where's Hagar from? Egypt. Egypt. And she, living with Abraham and Sarah, is the Ger, is the stranger. So last week um, I asked us to consider the story from the position of uh, Savina Tuval of Blessed Memory, the scholar who looks at women's stories from Mesopotamia and from uh, neighboring countries as well, from Greece, uh, from uh, all these cultures that were preceding Israelite culture, and asks us to hold on to that context and those laws and those rules as we read these texts. These texts are the foundational texts of a patriarchal biblical society. The patriarchy doesn't just make up stories. Patriarchal Israelite culture draws the stories from the region and reconstructs them. It's what we've always done, right? We reconstruct the traditions, the stories that we're exposed to. So that's exactly what early Israel did. They took the stories of the neighborhood. Remember, most Israelites would have been Canaanite who convert over to the worship of yud heh They bring with them their stories, But we're going to get the Israelite version of that story, of course. Uh, But I want us to do what Sabina Tuval asks, which is to hold in our mind the Mesopotamian background from which these women would have uh, come. And we're going to read the text through that lens as well, as holding the fact that, of course, these are um, now stories of the patriarchs. Right, The matriarchs are now attached to patriarchs. They would have had their own narrative cycles in Mesopotamia. Sarai, what does Sarai mean? Princess. Princess. Sarai is a pedimento of the goddess. These are priestess, um, princess stories. Um, and now, now Sarai becomes attached to the patriarch Avraham. But once upon a time, Sarai had her own set of legends and stories, as did Hagar. Hagar would have had her own narrative cycles. Uh, as would have Rachel, Leah, and Rivka. So we're going to hold kind of some of the background narratives uh, in our minds and imaginations as we read the text as it is reworked by the patriarchy, by patriarchal early Israel. You're saying all the matriarchs, are you saying all the matriarchs have their own stories? Yes. Different ones. As would have Isaac, as would have Avraham, right? We've lost a lot of their original stories that would have been people's stories of their 
heroes and heroines slash gods and goddesses, right? And um, and it all gets changed as those stories are reconstructed by Israelite civilization, just like the flood narrative, right? We can see the, the Canaanite flood narrative. We have the legend of Gilgamesh. We have the local flood story. And so we can compare how did early Israel reconstruct the flood narrative. You have to have the flood narrative in the neighborhood. You have to have Sarai in the neighborhood. So, um, but their role has become very different as they become matriarchs, meaning wives of the patriarch. Rabbi, you're saying that the uh, Israelites were the first patriarchal society? Um, it's one of the early patriarchal societies. It's one of the early patrilineal, patrilocal societies. In Mesopotamia, Babylonia, the earlier cultures, many of them were matrilocal, matrilineal. Power was shared, but there was a goddess. She had her priestesses. So those women were empowered in a way that we do not see in early Israel. We only have male god, male priests. Um... And, and now it becomes patrilineal and patrilocal. So one of the things I want to ask, thank you, Ruben, for bringing it up. I want us to read these stories, um, and this is um, how Sabina Tuval reads it in her book, Hagar the Egyptian, reading these stories as the matriarchs and their struggle for an heir. So we usually think of these narratives as who looking for an heir? Who Avraham is looking for an heir. I want us to flip in our minds and just hold this idea that in Mesopotamia, women passed their own legacy, particularly high-ranking women like priestesses. They would have passed their own inheritance down through daughters. And if no daughter, then they would have passed it to a uterine brother's child, a uterine brother's daughter. Right? What does that mean? What's a uterine brother? From the same uterus as... A brother from the same uterus, meaning it doesn't matter who the father is. A brother through sharing a mother, the, ma- the maternal line, his daughter would have been the next to inherit. Many of these women, um, especially sac- women who are involved in sacred uh, work like priestesses, would not have become pregnant. That was part of their contract, part of their um, way of being in the world. Think Vestal Virgins, right, of Artemis, right? They, they were not distracted by um, children, and they tended, you know, to, to other affairs. But when it came time for her to worry about her getting older and who's going to take care of her and who's going to do all the rituals for her after she's dead, a lot of ancestor rituals, you know, ancestor worship happened in this culture. Um, who would have been pouring out the libations for her after she's dead? A daughter, or a son. Um, and so she would often acquire an heir through, any guesses? Handmaiden? <laughs> <laughs> Surrogate motherhood through a handmaiden, through someone right in her household. All right. That is exactly what we saw last week, did we not? Sarah takes Hagar. Gives her to Abraham in order to acquire an heir through Hagar. Then something happens between, we're not sure whom, 
But what we know from the text is Sarai gets very upset with whom? Avraham. And says to him, Hamasti alecha. My Hamas is on you. My chaos, tragedy, violence, suffering is on you. All right. So we're looking now at the second episode involving Hagar. And before we get all reactive, we're going to hold this other way of reading this text in mind, okay? So we're going to work, we can handle this. All right. <laughs> Chapter 21, um, verse 8. We are now talking about Yitzchak. Somebody read, but not everybody. The child grew up and was weaned, and Abraham had a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham, playing. She said to Abraham, cast out that slave woman and her son, for the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly, for it concerned a son of his. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed over the boy or your slave. Whatever Sarah tells you, do as she says, for it is through Isaac that offspring shall be continued for you. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him too, for he is your seed. Okay. So, Sarah has Isaac. How old is Ishmael when Isaac is born? Thirteen. So Ishmael is 13 years old when Isaac is born. Not that I know of. Uh, other than? He was bar mitzvah. <laughs> well, of course he was bar mitzvah. Is it, is it a coincidence that Muslim boys are circumcised at age 13? It's not a coincidence, but, but they are circumcised. Uh, by the way, Egyptians would have circumcised. Um, so, But it's a new idea in early Israel, right? That's a new concept in the region. Um, so he is... 13, which doesn't have the same significance it does for us, but why do we do bar mitzvah at 13? Beginning of adulthood. Why? Responsibility. Really, they're not. They're 21 when they enter adulthood. Why do we do it at 13? Because now you're responsible for yourself. Why? Why 13? Because. They Thank you. Puberty. Right. Hello. They can procreate. Oh, right. They can procreate. They ne- that's what makes them adults. Because their frontal lobes are nowhere close to being adult frontal lobes. They're not they're nowhere close Amen. to being adults. But the body doesn't wait for the brain to come fully online. Hence teenage pregnancy rates. Hence, right, all kinds of crazy things that happen because their brains aren't ready, but their bodies are 13. They are pubescent. That's significant for Sabina Tuval, that Ishmael is going to be post-pubescent for all of this business, all of this story. Once he's post-pubescent, he is marriageable. That becomes the big concern. Marriageable. All right, so he's 13 years old. Isaac here is being weaned. How old is Isaac when he's weaned? Two. Three, four, five. 
three, four, five. So let's say at the earliest three, at the latest five, which puts Ishmael at the age of 16 or 18 at the time of the episode we're looking at. We are certainly talking about somebody who is marriageable. It's start, it's time to think about, really think about what's gonna be once a kid, once a boy is this old. He should be married by 18, or at least betrothed, right? You, you, you figured out what, what the match is gonna be. None of that's happened. We haven't seen any of that. All right. But that's the situation of the family. Now, some people want to suggest after last week, after that business with Sarai and Avram, that Ishmael is no longer the heir. Savina Tuval says, we have no evidence for that. In fact, she sees this as evidence against that. That at this moment, both Ishmael and Yitzchak are inheritors of Sarah. All right, where did she find that proof? Sarah saw, what did she see? The son whom Hagar Hamitri, Hagar the Egyptian, had born to Avraham. What is the verb you have there at the end of sentence nine in Hebrew? Uh, what's the verb in Hebrew? Mitzachek. Mitzachek. No. No. Robert, why are you laughing? Ah, he's laughing because he already gets the implications. Sexual overtones. There are sexual overtones to playing. Mitzachekin. Mitzachek. Sarah sees the son whom Hagar had born to Avraham. Mitzachekin. Mitzachekin. What? Just Mitzachekin. All right. What, what is the name of Sarah's son, whom she bore to Abraham? Yitzchak. It's okay. They're all related, Enid. They're all related. So we can put in parentheses, laugh, but we can't miss... My brain can't do two things at once. We can't miss the wordplay... Pardon the pun. <laughs> the word play in Hebrew. Right? Sarah sees the son whom Hagar bore, Mitzachik. It sounds too much like Yitzchak for us not to have possibly a clue here. What is he doing, maybe? Acting like he's the inheritor. Acting like Yitzchak. He's Yitzhaking. If he's Yitzhaking, what does that mean? What might bother Sarah about Ishmael Yitzhaking? He's imitating the baby. 
Ah, now, here's where some commentators go. Mitzacheking means he's making fun of Yitzchak. He's Yitzchaking, right? He's, he's mocking Yitzchak, imitating Yitzchak, but he's 16 or 18 years old. Like, it's one thing when kids do it, when, a, when you've got rival sons in the house and one of them is 16 or 18 and is going to a four-year-old mocking them possibly the Sarah's like okay this this is not going to work let's assume Savina Tuval is right and they are both still inheritors possibly Sarah sees at this moment this is not going to go well if this is how he treats Yitzchak, and they both inherit, this is going to get ugly fast. She goes right there. She goes right there. All right, but let's not leave this yet. But Robert had another interpretation. How do we know, Robert, that Mitzachek might have something to do with fooling around? We've seen it somewhere. We have seen it somewhere before. Yes, we have. How did did someone know that Rivka and Yitzchak were not brother and sister? In that wife sister narrative, saw them mitzacheking on the roof. (laughs) All right, the only kind of mitzacheking that lets you know people are not brother and sister is sexual. sexual. Wait a second. What? Who is that now? Yitzchak and Rivka, his wife. That's later. That's later. Yes. We saw performance. We've been studying Torah together for five years. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Right. The rabbis say There is no early and late in Torah. Well, but it really wouldn't matter whether it was first or second because it's a clue as to what the word means. Right. What I meant is we know the clue because we've read ahead. We know that story of Yitzchak and Rivka where it says. They couldn't possibly be brother and sister because they were metzacheking on the roof. That's wrong. <laughs> That's what? What if they lived down south in a rural family? I am from Atlanta. I'm going to choose to let that pass, Sarah Moskowitz. My brother Daryl's also my first cousin and nephew. Um, all right. Well, there's got to be some explanation as to why Sarah just gets livid. So, well, well, if it's up. if he's 16 or 18 and he's mitzacheking with a four or five year old, we can understand why Sarah goes there like that. But it's not the 16 year old that is. Mapitom. No, 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 Linda, no. Of Hagar, the Mitzri, of Hagar, the Egyptian, Mitzachek. Ishmael. If he's Mitzacheking sexually with, yeah, yeah, with the four-year-old, you can understand why Sarah's like, oh, I don't think so. Not good. And again, forget the like homosexual overtone aspect. It's just the abuse aspect of taking advantage of of a child is like she's horrible she's like oh mm-mm. this has gotta this has gotta stop but this are, are we inferring are we inferring that uh, a possible thing that's going on here is that Ishmael is making fun of 
Isaac just because yes. of the... But, I mean, in, in the case of Isaac and Rivka, there's no... Mocking. There's no, there's no mocking. It's there's just no, sexual. It, there's no wordplay. Isn't it an, an alternative? I'm not saying that that's not the correct interpretation, but this is all happening during a big feast. Right, this was at the feast to celebrate the weaning of Isaac. Um, or after. Oh, okay. So, all right. so I'm, there I'm, was a feast, he's weaned, and in Torah sometimes now we're talking now three we're, years later. Okay. Right. So we're not I, sure. So I was thinking possibly that, I mean, the first time we were talking about, okay, so now he's 16 and he's fooling around, the first thing that popped into my mind, because we didn't get into the laughing with Isaac part, was that, okay, there it's a big feast, so, and Abraham was presumably a, a wealthy man relatively Yes. There's like everybody in the neighborhood is there, including all the pretty young girls. Yeah. And so maybe he's just behaving inappropriately with some of the pretty young girls and Sarah is upset that, oh, maybe he's gonna like glom on to somebody who he wants to take for a wife and then all of a sudden things are gonna spin out of control because Abraham is gonna give the inheritance to that. Okay, so possibly the mitzacheking is not Possibly it's still sexual, but not directed to Isaac. It's directed to the girls at the party. Okay, presumably in that society, men and women would have been kept very separate. But it doesn't mean he couldn't have been sneaking around to the girls' tent and peeking under the flaps, so to speak. Um, but um, so that's possible. But presumably, Abraham would have had full control over, you know, who he. Marries, but 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 yeah, possibly mitzacheking is directed at somebody else. Bert? Because the text doesn't say he was playing with Isaac. No, it, it just doesn't. says he was playing mm-hmm. with something. Correct. With somebody. Correct. We don't know anything more than that. Vatomer Avraham, and she says to Avraham, Garesh ha'ama hazot, banish ha'ama or throw out. Ha'amahazot. What has she been called before? What's the word she was called that we used over and over again last week? Shivcha. What is shivcha? Handmaiden. Handmaiden. Right? Somebody of presumably close intimacy with the mistress. Somebody who was possibly even, remember, she's a gift. She's a gift from Pharaoh, possibly. We're not sure. But from Pharaoh to the couple after Pharaoh's had his way with Sarah in the harem for a while. So, Possibly she's of high status and high rank, Hagar. What is she called here? Garesh. Amma. Garesh et Amma. Throw out the Amma, the slave woman. Right? So after last week, remember, last week was not very good what happened last week. And so she's changed status in Sarah's eyes, right, to a, to a slave. Sarah's really mad. Well, she's really she's, mad. She's mad. <laughs> she must have seen something. She's, she's mad. Whatever. She's wife number two. Still, isn't she? Ah, so we have a very important question here. Last week we heard that she was given by Sarah to Abraham as Isha. What is Isha? Wife. wife. So if she was given as wife, wife number two, like... But it seems clear she remains the property of Sarah and Abraham, possibly, um, because she calls her Amma. She makes it clear. You may have taken her, right, and something may have happened between y'all that I'm still not happy about, and now something's happened with Ishmael that she's not happy about, and Hagar is clearly Amma. 
slave. Now, I'm going to ask for just a minute that we go with Savina Tuval and we pretend, let's just pretend, Sarah's not angry. We're reading anger into this. Let's take a step back. What if she's not angry? What if she has the weaning festival? She still hasn't determined who her heir is going to be. They both, right, are possible heirs. She sees Ishmael mitzachik and decides that's not the one. That's not the one who's going to be my heir. We, we don't know what it is. Let's say it's not horrible. It's just something that has her say to herself, I've been trying to figure it out. I've been waiting to see which one it's going to be. It's not this one. Isn't there a theme of the younger son? Ultimogenitor is definitely part of our narratives. The youngest son inherits. It would have been the older son in a patriarchal society that inherits, not so in a matrilocal, matrilineal society of Mesopotamia. The youngest would have been the one taking care of the, the parents in their old age and often was the one who inherited. Yes, Paula. But then she could have stepped in. Sarah could have stepped in. He's my heir. You step aside, Hagar. I'll be stepping in now. Maybe, though, to your point, maybe this is part of the whole thing between her and Hagar. Remember last week, Hagar got pretty uppity, right? And, And held Sarai in scorn. So maybe Sarah feels like even if I try to step in, Hagar and I are now in this really hard place and she won't listen. It could get uglier, okay? But so maybe she has those feelings because she gave birth to the younger son and Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. So possibly it's a biological connection, possibly. But what she said, what are her choices? Well, first of all, let's go to cast out the Amma and her son. For the son of that slave shall not share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. This is where Savina Duval finds evidence that until this moment, the suggestion is he was going to inherit with Yitzchak. He hasn't been cut off, right? He, I don't want that anymore, that they're going to share inheritance. And certainly not you know, mine now. So, so that they have been both inheritors until now. And she said, what are the choices? Hagar and her son, she now doesn't want them anymore as the status of heirs. And in Mesopotamian law, if you have a natural son, it can replace the adopted son, right, that was going to inherit. So now she's going to replace Ishmael, the adopted heir, with her biological heir. What are her options? Keep the adopted son there. Okay, and what happens with that? There'll be a little rivalry. Uh, Right. He's understood himself to be the heir. The eldest, the heir. Uh, now, not so much. So that's probably not going to be pretty. And it's already not comfortable. It's already tense. We've already seen Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel. <laughs> Let that be a lesson. So is that something Sarah's going to want? Is Hagar and Ishmael in the house? Once she's disinherited Ishmael? 
She's a slave. What can Sarah do? Anything she wants. Anything she wants. And if you're a smart businesswoman, what would that include? Selling them. You sell them. You want to get rid of slaves? What do you do? You sell them. Joseph's brothers did that to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so if you don't... So in Mesopotamian law, there's also a discussion about if she's born a son, this slave, to the master, you can't reduce her. Remember we, we talked about this last week? You can't reduce her to slavery. If, if I can't reduce her to slavery and sell her, what are my options? One of them is to free her. If we read this as Sarah is not angry, Sarah has made a decision. What makes logical sense is free them they're they're now like they're not our they're not going to be in our household anymore we're we're not going to sell them we're not reducing them to slavery they're also not part of our house anymore but they are they are now free yes but they knew they didn't know there was going to be divine intervention so they knew they were sending them out in the midbar to their death I don't know that we know that. I hear that you 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 think they know that. Okay, we, we don't know that. We don't know, first of all, that they're they're not on a spice route. We don't know that a caravan doesn't come through there regularly. We don't know. Well, we do find out that they're out of water in a day, and it's true. a dire situation. They it's true. Die they could have. They could have. Without divine intervention, yeah. But, again, does... Do they know that, right? We don't know. We don't know. So it depends how you choose to read it. I'm saying we're reading it as they are, they are, for now, um, freed. The interesting thing here is that God, who's about to say this, doesn't seem to be mad and says to Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of them. Now, they were terrible, and there was something horrible that happened, and God didn't like them, probably he wouldn't say that. Okay. So what we do know is the matter distressed Avraham greatly, for it concerned a son of his. So Avraham is very concerned, to Pam's point, that we're not in the best neighborhood, right, for a woman alone with a son. And he's very distressed about Ishmael. But God says to Avraham, don't be distressed over the boy or... Your ama, your slave. Rabbi, can I? This may interrupt the narrative. Manishtana. I don't understand how they could possibly share the inheritance. Why not? Well, could they both be the, the chief? I mean, that, that's. They so, so they they might could share inheritance. One of them would have been designated the patriarch. And, and in Suvina Chival's reading, one of them would have been designated Sarah's heir. They might have both shared Abraham's inheritance, but one of them would have been Sarah's heir. Um, and it seems that had they stayed, both of them there, they would have shared in the inheritance of Abraham. It doesn't mean it's equal parts, but Yaakov was going to inherit like Esav was. Both boys, Esav and Yaakov, were both going to inherit. What did Yaakov steal? Yaakov stole the bigger portion belonging to the firstborn. 
right? But he would, it wasn't like he wasn't going to inherit anything. Both boys were going to inherit. And the 12 tribes all inherit, and they're from four different mothers, right? No, I, I took inheritance to mean... Exclusive. No, to, no not necessarily, but to be the boss. Ah, got yeah. it. No right. one chef in the kitchen who's like... So there's only going to be one inheritor, Reuben, of the promise, of the covenant. And that is what we learn right from here is going to happen. But, but, what's, but what's happening, this is what I love about this text. So he says, it, the text says, don't be distressed. Whatever Sarah tells you, do as she says. <laughs> For it is through Isaac that offspring shall be continued for you. So Yitzchak's going to be your line. As for the son of the slave woman, I will make a nation of him too. For he is your your seed. He's promised a nation. Ishmael is going to be his own nation. So clearly, this is its own, this is like parallel to the covenant with Abraham, that I will make of you a great nation. Also, of Ishmael. This is a parallel promise. This is huge. It gets huger. All right, go on, Bert. Early next morning, Abraham took some bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He placed them over her shoulder together with the child and sent her away. And she wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone from the skin, she left the child under one of the bushes and went and sat down at a distance, a bow shot away, for she thought, let me not look on as the child dies. And sitting thus afar, she burst into tears. Go on. God heard the cry of the boy, and an angel of God called Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heeded the cry of the boy where he is. Come, lift up the boy and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and let the boy drink. God was with the boy, and he grew up. He dwelt in the wilderness and became a bowman. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay. Before you said he was 16. Now right. he's a little. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Very good reading, Susan. There's no beginning and no end. <laughs> ah, Reuben is going to pull out a rabbinic axiom for us. <laughs> there is no early and late in Torah. This is one of the places, Susan, that Suvina Tuval argues we have the conflation of two stories here. There is another tradition of what she calls the desert matriarch, the, you know, the matriarch of a, a founder of her own peoples. Um, and the yeled is always yeled in those stories. So back from 16, there are some verses that belong and verses from here together to make a, a narrative about a desert matriarch and a yeled, a, a child. And she sees this as an indication that this is not truly the story of Ishmael, that part. Because he is called what? He's not called Yeled. He's called what? Na'ar. Na'ar. He is Na'ar. And what is Na'ar? A young man. A young man. A youth. A youth. A youth. A youth. So he's called a Na'ar in our story. So he's not a Yeled. And also, also this business of putting him on her shoulder it is... Mm. Not 
an image that fits with him being a even if he's 13 it doesn't fit right that he's a na'al so early the next morning Avram takes bread and water and gives them to Hagar places it on her shoulder together with the child yeah right and sent her away and she wanders in the wilderness of Beersheba when the water's gone from the skin she leaves the child under one of the bushes why why under a bush shade Shade, protection and went and sat down at a distance a bow shot away if you look at bow and arrows from this region from this time period they are about this big they are very small the arrows we have found are thin and very light which means a bow shot is not all that far so she's five feet well, it's, it's not when we think of, I, I think of like medieval, you know, castle, you know, let it fly, you know, and they, Game of Thrones, right? And it's like, like it's miles, the arrows go for miles and take people out in the field, right? That's, she's not that far from him. It's a much smaller bow, right? A much shorter distance. Um, so she can still, you know, presumably see him. Let me not look on as the child dies. So... We don't know that he's dying. It's possible that they've run out of water. It's hot. He's faint. You know, and she's a mother. She's worried. She's, she's freaking out. There's no one around. We don't have any water. What are we going to do? He's surely going to die. She panics or, or feels what every mother would feel, right, in that circumstance. And, and so she lays him under the bush, and the translation is like, what does your translation say? And sitting thus afar, she, what? Wept she, in a loud voice. Okay, much better. Mine says she burst into tears. <laughs> what? So the Hebrew is, what does the Hebrew say? Vatisa et kolech. She did what? She lifted, I mean, et kolach, she lifted up her voice. Vatefk. And she wept. Hagar doesn't burst into tears. Hagar lifts up her voice. I don't know about y'all, but if I thought something was happening to my child, lifting up my voice would not be bursting into tears. I'd be, you'd be storming heaven, right, as a mother. And she weeps. Vayishma. What's Vayishma. And heard. Ah, heard. Vayishma. And he heard. Who did he hear? Who? 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 Yishmael. Vayishma Yishmael. Right? It's not there in the text, but the Na'ar is is. Ishmael. It's a youth and not a, boy, not a child anymore. Aha, uh-huh, right? We're back to Na'ar. We're back to Na'ar. Va'yishma, Ishmael. I mean, we'll put this in parentheses because it says the youth. But you can't miss that the next word after she raises up her voice, Va'yishma. Hushmad. Hushmad? God. God. God shmaz. Who does God hear? The Na'ar. At kol ha-na'ar. The voice of the Na'ar. 
Mm, what happened there? Yeah. So why am I stopping here? Well, the boy wasn't making any noise. It was Hagar. Laura, what were you going to say? Hagar lifts up her voice, and God heard the voice of the Naar Ishmael. Okay, why? How? Like what? So I thought the boy was dying. Right. So is he moaning? Is he? Does he hear his mother hollering and? Cry out himself? We don't know. But his voice is heard. Vayikram malach Elohim el Hagar. And now a malach, a messenger. Where am I? A malach Elohim, an angel, a messenger of Elohim, says to Hagar, Min Hashemayim, from the sky, Vayomerla, and says to her. Malach Hagar. What is Malach? Malach. <laughs> see, in Hebrew, do you see how many things we're missing in the English? Malach. Ma. I hate printing. Ma. Malach. And we just heard Enid tell us that sounds an awful lot like Malach. Malach is angel. angel. Malach. No. What is ma? What? What? What's the matter? What's up? What's with you? What's up with you? What's up with you, Hagah? What did the Malach say to her last week? The first person ever to encounter a Malach in Torah is Hagah. What did the angel ask her last week? What did he ask her? Where have you come from and where are you going? Does he ask anything about where this time? Malach Hagar, says the Malach. Yes? Malach, what's with you? What, the angel doesn't know? Hello, I've been screaming. My kid is over there, like... Malach Hagar, what is the angel asking? What's going on? It's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical question. Like when God says to Adam and Eve, where are you? In the Garden of Eden. God should know. Right, God doesn't have GPS. Where are you? Malach Hagar, what's happened to you? And then says, without hesitation, Al tiri, don't be afraid. Kishama Elohim et kol hanaar, for God has heard the voice of the naar. Here's one of the most beautiful sentences for me in Torah. God has heard the voice of the naar. Rita, tell me what comes right after that. He has heard. God has heard the voice of the naar. Rita left the room. She left the room. God hears the voice of the Naar. Be'asher Husham. What does that mean? This translation says where he is. 
because he's there. Well, where else would he be? <laughs> what does this mean? God hears the voice. Thank you, Rita. The one time I count on you and need you, and she's gone. That's fine. No, that's all right. I'll just keep working up here. I'm sorry. God hears the voice of the Na'ar. Be'asher is a pointing word. What do you call that in English when, when you're pointing at a... Indirect. What is it? A Indirect. Object. I mean, it's a, it's a pointing word to something. It doesn't have its own meaning. It's, it's pointing to something. Be'asher is about, is about whatever is about to come. Be'asher, who means what? Me. What's sham? There. Okay. There. What the heck does that mean? Because he's there. There's no because. Ah, thank you, Linda Rosen. Say that again. God hears us where we are. Really beautiful. Because, duh, he's there. Where else would he be? Where else would I be? God hears me where I am. Well, where else would I be? Somewhere else that I'm not? That doesn't make any sense. This is redundant. Torah's never redundant, God forbid. Be'asher hu sham. Here's the voice of the Na'ar where he is. Not where you're supposed to be to pray. Not in the sanctuary. Not from a completely pure and contrite heart, which is the only way we can be answered or heard. Torah's saying, garbage. God hears the call, the voice of the Na'ar wherever he is. Is. Maybe it means where he is emotionally, like where he's coming from. In this case, it's through his mother's voice. Ah, very nice. Say more, Laura. Well, I don't know that it's, that's the only way literally that we hear Na'ar's voice right now. We know that unless, you know, unless we want to infer that he also is non-verbally making his voice heard. But... God has just been hearing Hagar perhaps pleading on behalf of her son for his life or his... Beautiful that God hears the voice of the Na'ar through the voice of Hagar. Beautiful. Isn't this what advocacy is? Who's always your grace? It's your mother. Well, well, they're supposed to be. (laughs) They're supposed to be. There's also and, and even dealing with the most difficult people we deal with. If I can imagine somebody at three and know that they didn't get something they needed, that's why they're coming at me like they are, it's so much easier for me to respond instead of react. Because we do have this, this hopefully, rachamim, right? Rachamim, rechem, womb, like this, this emotion we call rachamim, compassion, is really about what we feel for the issue of, of the womb, for children, for puppies. I'm sure the rabbis drew parallels between this and the Akedah because you have an angel and God coming in at the last minute to save one of, Ab- uh, one of Abraham's children. They are less interested in making a parallel to the Akedah. Really? It's, but who is? The Muslims. Mm-hmm. It's a very important text in Islam. 
it's part of the Hajj. Mm-hmm. They go back and forth seven times, Hagar looking for water, looking for a place. I mean, you, do, you, you do have a situation where you do have an angel and God comes down. It is parallel. Saves. I'm not saying it's not. Right. I'm saying the rabbis don't have a huge interest in lifting up the parallel of Yishmael to Yitzchak, but it is there. And so Islam, of course, takes that, and, and it's a very important part of their tradition. Diane? I'm looking at it at an even larger picture of what's going on right now in the world. Being that there's so many homeless, there's so many, there's so much people around the world who are in, in need. And of course, uh, I'm looking at it that we it's a call of God to our compassion to be aware of what's going on. Right. Because... Right. This is what I was going to say. I'm glad you're here. You always bring us back to Hagar is us. Sarah is us. Yitzchak is us. Yishmael is us. What is the part of us that we split off? What is the part of the, what is the Hagar in us that we banish, that we don't want to see? And, and to take your point, what is the part of humanity we decide is disposable? There dark-skinned, they're poor, they live far away from us. Oh, well, they can starve. They can die of disease. Their children can die of dysentery, even though it costs two pennies for a pill that will cleanse the water. It, it, it doesn't really matter. They're disposable. And they're lazy. Hmm? And they're lazy. And they're lazy. And, you know, they're parasites, really. They suck off, you know, all the money from the West. We who work hard. Right? You're being ironic. Yeah, in, oh. yeah. <laughs> I just want to be Thank clear you, about that. I forget I be clear. That, that people, people on the podcast the can't see my face, right? The nonverbals oh, are not communicated out right. on iTunes. I thought you were running for president. <laughs> you thought I was running for president. <laughs> and, and how frightening is it? That a candidate that is being taken at all seriously in our presidential elections could say what I just said with a straight face and no irony. And people are saying yay. And people are saying yay. That is really to the point about how far it's come. Yeah? And claim to be religious. And claim to be people of faith. Of an Abrahamic faith. Of an Abrahamic faith. Praise be. All right, so... um, so, come, kumi. What? Just a minute ago, tisa et kola. She lifted up her voice, storming the heavens. What is it? What does the malach say? Kumi, get up. Sei Lift up the boy. Lift up the youth. And. Take him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Right? Goigado, a great people. Vayivkach Elohim et Eneha. What does your translation say? Oh, yeah, it's okay. Never mind. This is a word, by the way, beautiful Hebrew. This is a verb only. I don't know that it exists in any other language. This word is Vayivkach. Um, the, the word for what happens, her eyes opening is only in Hebrew. Is, this is, it's only used for eyes. How beautiful is that? There's a verb for opening the eyes. 
If not, it's not vayiftach, right? We're used to seeing vayiftach, opened. This is vayivkach. Similar sound, but different shoresh. And this is just for the eyes. God opens her eyes. Vatere be'er maim. And she sees what? Of course she sees a well. Right? She has to see a well. Why? So she can be well, says Daniel. To save Ishmael. What is a well in our culture? What is it? Life. Good stuff. Good stuff. What else happens at a well always in our, huh? You meet people. Who do you meet? You meet your wife. Some want to argue this is actually a betrothal type scene, just like with Rebecca, just like with, with Leah and Rachel, that this is actually a betrothal scene. He's now of marriageable age, and they're at a well. And Moses, too. And Moses, too. Exactly right, with Tzipua. Is, the, is the, the connotation of this very specific opening in your eyes in Hebrew, is it similar to the sense that you have if you're reading in an in English work, like the scales fell from your eyes or something like that, where all of a sudden you're like being made aware of possibilities that you haven't seen before? Is that a, is that a similar? I think, it, I think it depends on what follows, mm-hmm. but I think a lot of times what follows is that, mm-hmm. right? That, that often yifkaching the eyes results in seeing in a different way than one did before. But not, not always, but seeing I think it, it's very... It's very often that it's followed with something like that. But what we know is that she sees, this is, this is what I'm going to, I want you to do, hold it as a possibility. She sees a be'er, it doesn't say God created a be'er mine. What does it say? She saw the well. It's possible that they did not put her out or Ishmael out where there was no water. She panicked. When the skin was dry, she flipped. I get it. I understand it. But it's possible there's a well there. Avraham knows that. They know that. They've been living around there for a while. Like they, you know in the desert where there's water and where there's not. It's possible that they put her somewhere where she was within a day's walk of water. She doesn't see it. Because how many times do we lift up our voices and rage and weep when the well is right over there? (laughs) We put the boy over here, don't let me see him die, oh my God, and right over there behind me is a well. This, of course, is a metaphor, right? That the Hagar we split off has to find a different way to that life-giving water. Has to, has to look differently than the way we typically do with our panic and our... And again, I'm not without compassion. I'm saying it's us. This is us. All of us. We flip out. The skin is empty and this kid depends on me. What am I going to... Like, we panic. That's natural. That's okay. The Malach and God are not upset with Hagar. 
They don't say quit freaking. <laughs> right? They respond to her call, to her voice. The fact that they appear and his when own. she panics makes it seem like her panic is actually a good thing. But when you talk about... <laughs> when she... Thank you, Daniel. It's a good thing. How does the malach hear? What does it take for the malach to respond? <laughs> it, she has to cry out. The Egyptian has to cry out in her suffering. Robert, go ahead and say it. Where did we hear this before? Where are we going to hear this, people? Where are we going to hear this? The Exodus. The Exodus. 400 years there in Egypt. It's not a mistake that she's an Egyptian and a stranger. 400 years. They are strangers in the land of Egypt. Where's God for 400 years? Waiting for the cry. Waiting for... And then it says they cried in their oppression. They lifted up their voices, and there was a tsa'aka, a cry. It seems it takes a cry of protest before the malach can respond. We have to lift up our voices and protest. I was going to say, it takes a cry of protest. Yes. Yes. So I take, I hear what you're saying about protest, and I think that's So a cry for help is protesting my situation. Okay. Yes, I don't want, I don't want to live like this anymore. I'm in pain. I need help means I want it to change. I protest. Finally, I'm ready to ask for help or admit that I'm hurting. Admit that I'm afraid. Admit that I'm flat out panicked or enraged even. We don't know. She's weeping. That doesn't mean she's not pissed off. Right? She lifts up her voice, says to me, she's getting loud. Right? She don't play. The car don't play. In the end, the solution was the well which was there all the time. The well that was there all along. But she couldn't see it until she cries out. The malach then can respond and she can have her eyes opened and see the well. Reminds me of Jacob when he said God was in this place all the time and I didn't know it. Yes. She then goes to the well. She fills right her thing with mayim and she slakes the thirst of the boy. Right, again, a Hebrew word that you don't have in English. Well, I guess slake. Um, this, this is a very specific word in Hebrew. You only use it for thirst. She, she gives him water. She quenches. But again, the, the word thirst is not here. and It's implied in the Hebrew. She alleviates the thirst of the lad. Vayehilohim et na'ar. And God was with the na'ar. Vayigdam. And he grew up. This is exactly the verb we just saw about Yitzchak. Right? He grew up and was weaned. We're getting now that Ishmael grows up by Yeshev by Midbar. And he settles in the Midbar. He settles in the desert by Yehirova Keshet. He was a bowman. By Yeshev by Midbar Paran. And he stays in the Midbar Paran. But Tikach Lo Imo. And... 
uh, his mother takes for him Isha Mi'eretz Mitzrayim. She takes for him a bride from her people, from Egypt. This means she has complete authority. The authority chooses the wife. Hagar, who was a slave, whose son was going to be the inheritor of Sarah, who was going to have nothing at the end. Her son was going to be Sarah's heir, or even Avram's heir. But she, right, she, Sarah took him to be their child. She was going to have nothing. What does she have at the end of this story? She has control over her biological son, who is promised to become a great nation, and there is no man. There's no patriarch. Hagar is given a people as matriarch. This is not a disempowering story. It's not a happy story. It's not a pleasant story. What kind of coming into our own ever is? It ain't pretty, but this is not a disempowering story. I'm going to leave you with a handout from the late Dr. Tikva Frey-Merkensky, my teacher of blessed memory, who says, not only is this not a bad thing, Hagar here is Israel. This is the story of Israel. They, where do they encounter God? Where does Israel encounter God? In the Midbar. Hagar goes out into the Midbar. Hagar the Egyptian. She leaves Egypt. She's in the Midbar. When she's out of Egypt and in the Midbar, she encounters God. This is exactly what's going to happen to Israel. They are going to leave Mitzrayim. They're going to be in the Midbar. And they are going to get a promise that from that God that they will be a Goigadol. A goy kadosh, a great nation, a holy nation. This is exactly what's told to Hagar. That in microcosm, Hagar is the narrative of Israel. To make a foreign, not only foreign, but our enemy, you go down to Egypt, right? Egypt is not good. So you go down there. We take someone, a slave, from an enemy, let's just call it that for argument's sake, an enemy people, and you make her the paradigmatic representative story of your people's story? How crazy is that? This, according to my teacher, which I just think is a wonderful way of looking at it, is also that Ishmael, who she becomes the mother of the Ishmaelites, there's a way the Torah understands distinction without judgment. That they too will be a people. They too are related to Abraham. And this is our sacred story as well. The founding of Ishmael's people is a sacred story to us. It's our God that talks to Hagar and promises her that that this God will make of Ishmael a great nation. There's not a problem. Even though there's skirmishes and tensions with the Ishmaelites, don't get me wrong, but they're not other in terms of not being related to the divine. What if we really took that seriously today? 
how often do we see if they're different from us and if we have tension with them, well, then they are not related to the divine. Right? They're part of something else. The story, she says, of Sarai and Hagar is not a story of the conflict between us and other, but, Diane, between us and another us. Hagar is the type of Israel. She is the redeemed slave. She is us. And Sarai is both type and mother of Israel. She is both us and the one from whom Israel is born. Pitting part of Israel's consciousness against another part, the story creates tension in the mind of the readers. At the heart of the Abraham-Sarah cycle is a story demonstrating that the destiny of the people around Israel is not utterly different from Israel's. Readers often follow the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, viewing the other peoples as branches off the trunk. But the stories themselves show a more complicated sense of history. In their view, meaning the story's view, the other nations formed in these stories, Moab, Ammon, Ishmael, Edom, have destinies that are closely intertwined with Israel's. By God's grant, Esau and Edomites inhabit Mount Seir. The Moabites and Ammonites are settled in their lands. And by God's grant, the Ishmaelites are in everybody's face. Untamable, right? Remember, he's going to be a wild ass of a man, which is not a bad thing um, given the region and the metaphors of the region. Untamable and not subservient to the laws of the states in which they live. The ancestral stories of Genesis understand the extreme complexity of history and the difficult nature of covenants with God. They reflect the reality of a world with refugees, political oppression, and famine. They understand the intricacy of a special destiny and the need to maintain the destiny and the specialness of Israel without alienating or demonizing the other peoples. Instead of seeing the Ishmaelites as an unsocialized element within its boundaries or as demonic opponent of God's will or even as a people who have to be expelled or tamed, Genesis integrates Ishmael into Israel's self-understanding as its God-approved alter ego. For Ishmael is in many respects the polar opposite of Israel and a nation that often found itself marginal, exploited, and, the, and on the brink of destruction may have appreciated Ishmael's destiny of utter freedom. The story of Hagar as the archetype of Israel and of the coming and leaving of her son Ishmael depicts the destinies of Israel and Ishmael as parallel and presents a model of separation without denigration. both on our personal level, us and another us, the us we split off. Can we integrate that us that we tend to want to banish and not look at and split off as another us? It's okay. Yes, I'm impatient and selfish and quick to anger. Yes, petty, obsessed, whatever. Whatever those things we're so ashamed of. That us we're so ashamed of that we want to banish them into the desert so we don't have to look at them or confront them. Can we integrate that as another us? And can we as a people, can we as a country, can we as the West, fill in the blank however you want to, see peoples as complicated, as very different from us, sometimes as in complete opposition to us without needing to denigrate them? It's a challenge for our times so may it be in our time that we can figure it out that we might live together finally in peace. 
You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.